Welcome to the final Veritas of the spring 2019 semester. It's gone by very quickly, maybe not quickly enough for some of you. Thanks for being here with Blues Game 7. We were still up 1-0 last I saw. I don't really care about hockey. What is it? 1-1, sorry, womp womp. Let's pray, it'll happen. Hey, we're in the final sermon of a series called Four Questions Every College Student Needs to Answer. And tonight, here's our final question. Can Christians have doubts? What do you doubt? What do you question about your faith? What uncertainties do you have? Can, can you be a Christian and be uncertain about who God is? Can you be a Christian and question your faith in God? Can you waver in your commitment to God? Can you wake up one morning and wonder if you've made a mistake following Jesus? What doubts do you have? The lists uh, of questions and doubts and uncertainties that you have, that you've heard other people have, it's endless. There's intellectual doubts. Tim Keller wrote a book called Reason for God, and he was responding to seven different questions that people in his congregation in New York City ask. Among them, here's some questions. Can there really be one true religion? How could a good God allow suffering? How can a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever asked yourself those questions? One of the first episodes of the Liturgist podcast, it asks lots of questions about the Bible. What makes the Bible a better book than any other holy book? Maybe say the Quran. Why did some books make it into the Bible and others didn't? What about this one? How are we supposed to read the creation account in Genesis? Don't we have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and their conflicting accounts? How do science and faith fit together? What relationship, if any, do they have? So intellectual doubts. But not all of our doubts are strictly and just intellectual. Very often, they're born out of experience. Some people have doubts about God's goodness or his mercy or his power or his love or his sovereignty because they, and maybe you, have experienced hardship and pain and hurt and confusion and abuse, maybe sexual, maybe physical, maybe verbal, maybe even at the hands of a Christian. So there's experiential doubt. There's also smokescreen doubts. These are doubts and questions that we say we have, and maybe part of us does have them, but really, we're just not being honest because we could care less about that doubt. These are sort of doubts that provide a cover for us or an excuse that we give in order just to live a certain way that we want to live regardless of what the Bible says. These are doubts that we have in order to keep God at arm's length. I like how pastor and author John Ortberg, he says it this way. He says, some people want to believe in God, and so they're more likely to do so. Others don't want to believe in God, and they're more likely not to do so. These doubts don't simply reflect intellectual processes. They reflect the behavioral pre-commitments I've already made. So, for example, you love the idea of being in control of your life. And when you read Jesus' call to submit your life to him and to God's will, that, you don't want that. You want to be in control of your life. And so, for whatever reason, you start questioning the Bible's authority. You start questioning, can we trust the Bible? And maybe that's a question, but really, you don't want the Bible to be true because if it really is, that means you have to submit your life to God, and you don't want to do that. Maybe you love getting drunk, 
And so to preserve that commitment, you just start asking questions like, does the Bible really say not to get drunk? What does it really mean to even get drunk anyway? And that question leads to another question and leads to another question. And while they're not really serious doubts or questions, you just want to get your own way. Intellectual doubts, experiential doubts, smokescreen doubts. Which ones do you have? Who do you know that has those? Are these doubts surprising to you? Are they surprising to the other people? Have you been shamed or questioned or thought less of because you have these doubts? I heard a story of a, of a student in Veritas. They were nice enough to share with me just some of the doubts they're going through. She, she grew up in a Christian home and began asking some questions about the Bible. Is it trustworthy? Is it authoritative? Is it really from God? How can we know? And all of this was new territory for her. And in high school, she didn't feel comfortable voicing these out loud because she knew that if she voiced them out loud, she would be told, just believe. Just believe. It's God's word. Just believe it. And if she brought these questions up, she would be shamed. She would be thought of as less of a Christian, as maybe losing her faith. See, she always thought that being a Christian meant that you had to have 100% certainty. And anything below that 100% wasn't acceptable to God. Are you surprised that you have doubts? How have you been received when you've raised those doubts? What about God? Is God surprised by our questions, by our doubts, by our uncertainties? Does he accept them? James chapter 1, verse 6. But when you ask, when you ask God, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. See, these verses are saying that if and when we want to ask God for something, we've got to believe that he exists and that he's able and willing to provide for us. But if we doubt that, well, then we're unstable. Then we're, un, <clears throat> then we're unstable. We're double-minded. We're like a wave that blows back and forth in the wind, and we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. There's a well-known Christian leader affirmed this reality in one of his sermons he gave recently. He said he's wondering how long, it's the question he asked in the sermon, how long will Christians waver between two opinions of belief and doubt? He said in the sermon, you're on fire and you're attending these conferences and life's going great and then you get the phone call. Then you get the text. Then you get the change of circumstance and all of a sudden you say, oh my gosh, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure if there's a God. I need to talk it through again. And he asks, have you seen enough to stop wavering between two opinions? Have you seen enough to say the circumstances aren't always going to be great? I'm not all, but I'm, but I'm not wavering in what I've already committed to because I've seen enough to commit this life, good, the bad, the joy, the sorrow, to a great and living God. If the Lord's God, then worship the Lord. But if he's not, then worship something else. But make a decision. Has anyone come down to the bedrock of belief? Me, personally, I don't need another coffee with my friend to believe that God really loves me. I've seen enough of Jesus to say he loves me, period. End of conversation, done. Do you think other well-known leaders need to call up people and go for coffee and rehash it out? No, that would be weird. They don't need coffee because they've hit the bedrock of belief. Now, on the one hand, there's something about that verse in James, and there's something about that sermon by that Christian leader that is really good and that is really right and beautiful and attractive and worth striving for. Can you think about it? No doubt. 
hitting the bedrock of belief, no more coffees to rehash things out. I would love that. And you know, on the other hand, there's something that's really intimidating and there's really shame-inducing and really crushing about this call to not doubt because those things, they don't fit my experience and I'm sure they don't fit your experience. I mean, if you ever think this, wouldn't it be nice if we could just, could God just part the clouds and come down and show me himself? Couldn't we just go back to the first century when Jesus was around, alive and well in the flesh on this earth and hear his teachings and see his miracles? If only we could go back and see those things for ourselves, then we wouldn't doubt, right? Well, maybe not. Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. At this point in the story, Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, and he's commanded his original disciples to come to a mountain in the city of Galilee. And, and it's likely these original 12, it's likely they also invited other disciples of Jesus to come with them as well. You see, even though these disciples weren't part of the original 12, these were people who saw Jesus in the flesh, heard him speak, saw him perform miracles, and no doubt heard of his death and resurrection. And so now they are invited to come with the original 12, to come now with the 11 to the top of this mountain. Let's see what happens. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples, there's 11, because remember Judas was one of the 12. He, he uh, betrayed Jesus, so he's not there. The 11 disciples went to, the Gal- went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Those disciples could not believe their eyes. They could not believe that the person they were seeing on top of that mountain was really Jesus, that he really died, that he really rose. They doubted. These are men and women who were alive at the time of Jesus. They saw everything with their own eyes, and yet they doubted. If they saw Jesus and doubted, how can we not have doubts? You see, the reality is no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what time period in history you lived, we are always going to experience doubts and questions and uncertainties. And guess what? God is prepared for them. Small, small book of Jude in the New Testament says this in verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. The assumption there is that there's people in the Christian congregation who are doubting. You see, over and over again, the Bible assumes that Christians are going to have doubts and questions and certainties about our faith. They are a normal and unavoidable fact of life. Jesus knows that we have doubts, and he welcomes us, doubts and all. So then the question is, what do we do with them? We've got them. What do we do with them? Well, here's a couple things not to do. The thing that we can't do with these doubts is that we cannot get comfortable with them. We can't get comfortable with them. You see, while doubt is the reality, it's never the goal. God welcomes us, welcomes the doubter, but not necessarily the doubt. And this is a little bit different from what we hear in our culture, in our society, in our world today. Popular culture often views doubt as a noble thing in and of itself. It tends to highlight and praise these doubters as courageous loners, standing against the tide of society, standing up for what they believe in, doubting. But see, the Bible never views doubting as an activity or a condition that is good in and of itself. And so because of that, we shouldn't get comfortable with doubts. But we also shouldn't hide our doubts. If, if you really wanted to, you can probably do a pretty good job of hiding doubts from your roommates. 
from your friends, from your parents, maybe from your small group leader, maybe from me or a Veritas staff member, a pastor, something. You could probably get pretty good at that, but here's the deal. You're never gonna get good at hiding that from God. You can never keep God in the dark. Psalm 139 says this, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. The minute we think about it down in our head, God's already got it. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Any doubt that you've had, any uncertainty that you've had, any question that you've had, that's not an original thought. God is familiar with it. He knows it completely. The other week I was reading a bedtime story to one of my kids who will be unnamed. And as I look over, sitting in the bed and reading a little book, I look over and they are just on a hardcore search for boogers. I mean, knuckle deep, just going to town, not even listening to the story. And I'm going, come on, just stop it. That's gross. Don't pick your nose. Of course, I was gracious and gentle, all that. And they said, okay, sorry, Dad. So we start picking up the the book again, and I turn the page, and I look over five seconds later. They had taken the thin white sheet, the bed sheet, over their head, and just still just going, just kind of, you see the movement under the sheet, and I'm just, come on, really? I don't get how they don't get that. When we try to hide our doubts from God, we are like kids picking our nose underneath the covers, okay? We're fooling nobody. We're fooling nobody but ourselves if we think we're hiding that doubt from God. Don't hide your doubts because here's the other thing. When we hide our doubts, we begin bottling them up. And when we bottle up those doubts and questions, when we do that instead of bringing them out into the open, then our faith becomes highly pressurized. And we're gonna begin trying to be someone that we think we're supposed to be for someone else. We try to create the person, the image that the friend wants us to be, that the parent wants us to be, that the small group leader wants to be, and we are compromising where we're really at and who we really are. And when that happens, one of two things happen. Either we explode and dramatically walk away from our faith, or we develop a sort of secret pressure release valve that alleviates all this pressure and tension without anybody knowing. And so you're going to play the Christian role in public, but you're going to have that doubt-filled, sin-filled, shame-filled private life. If this is where you're at, then you know having a relationship with Jesus becomes more of a chore and a job rather than a joy to be lived out. Are you comfortable with your doubts? Are you trying to hide your doubts? You don't have to. You don't have to because there's another option. Instead, we can work through those doubts. God wants us to work through those doubts. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Mark chapter 9. Here's the scene. Uh, Jesus is up on a mountain with three other disciples. Other disciples are down on the mountain, and all the people here, the disciples are there, and they're bringing all their problems and the people that have diseases and ailments, they're bringing them to the disciples, and the disciples are trying to heal them, and they can't. And so Jesus comes back down into this mess. And there's a father who brought his son, who's possessed by a demon. This demon is trying to kill his son for who knows how long. Demon has thrown his kid into the fire. Demon has thrown his kid into bodies of water trying to drown them. The disciples tried to pray to cast this demon out, and they couldn't. And in comes Jesus. And Jesus says, I can and I will hear your son. And here's the father's response. He says, Jesus, I believe Help me overcome my belief. 
I believe. Help me overcome my belief. Same sentence, same breath. He didn't hide that unbelief. He told Jesus that he had it. He admitted that he had it. And he was not comfortable with that unbelief. He was not willing to sit with that doubt. He said he wanted help to work through it, to overcome it. And notice that that phrase, help, my, help me overcome my unbelief, that is always and will forever be in the present tense. And that's why, here's why I think it's significant. We're never going to move on from that prayer. We're never going to get to a point in our lives where we say, you know what, I believed and I overcame that unbelief. No, it's not possible. There might be things that we uh, figure out and move on and move past, but there's always going to be something down the road where we question it and we doubt it and we're uncertain. We're always going to have doubts and questions, and God knows this. God doesn't expect 100% certainty from us. He doesn't expect 100% certainty from us, but he does expect commitment from us. Certainty is a feeling. And feelings, as you know, they come and they go. And plus, you can't conjure up certainty by an act of will. But commitment is something that we have control of. Commitment is an important and a crucial part of faith. In fact, it's the part of faith that Jesus asks us to offer him in order to be in a relationship with him, our commitment. That father in Mark 9, he wasn't 100% certain about Jesus, but he wanted to be committed to Jesus. He said, I want Jesus. I want to want Jesus. Is that where you're at? Is that what you want? Do you want to work through those doubts in an honest moment? Are you content to remain where you are, to remain with those doubts, maybe the smokescreen doubts? See, the reality is that we can't have both. We can't, on the one hand, say that we want to follow Jesus with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We can't do that, but then also be content in our doubt these questions and uncertainties. This, this dynamic, this wanting to have this, them both, this is what James was speaking against in chapter one. See, James knew that there were Christians who were saying in the church, on the one hand, I want to follow Jesus, but on the other hand, I want to remain in the doubt, hide the doubt. If that's us, if that's what we're doing, then James is right. We're double-minded. We're back and forth like a wave and we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God if we're in both worlds. A couple of months ago, I got an amazing and an appalling text. But friends of ours, they realized, they came home, they saw that their eight-month-old had all sorts of little bug bites all over, and they're wondering what was going on. They looked in the crib and parted the little the sheets there, and there were bed bugs. Oh, I know, yes. It, hundreds and thousands of these nasty. And they looked around, their bed bugs had spread to their beds and the couches, and they were just, oh, he told me, I was, oh my gosh, bed bugs. That is the worst thing from the devil. And so they called up this exterminator, right? And they said, quick, get here like yesterday. Hurry up. We got to figure out a plan of how to get rid of them. Here's how you get rid of bed bugs. You, you microwave them, essentially. They, they don't survive at 120 degrees or higher. And so what they had to do is they had to get everything out of their house that would melt. They had to pack up all their stuff, and they had to leave their house for four days while the exterminator came in, sealed the house up, and lit it up to 120 degrees and just let them cook for a while. It was kind of awesome. <laughs> Not an easy plan. A lot of hassle. But totally worth it. Totally worth it. Why? Because you don't know no more bed bugs. It's awesome. Now, could you imagine 
how ridiculous the alternative would be? Could you imagine if they found the bed bugs, they heard the exterminator's plan, they're appalled, and they go, well, I don't know if I really want to go through all that work of getting everything out of the house and packing up the four kids. We'd rather just kind of stay here. That would be insane. That would be crazy. That's not wise. Here's the deal. They couldn't have both. They could not have a bed bug free house and not go through the work of packing up and getting out. You and I, we can't have both. We cannot have a growing relationship with God. We cannot in our hearts say, I want to want Jesus sincerely and be content sitting in a house filled with doubt. I really like how theologian A.W. Tozer said it. He said, God waits to be wanted. God waits to be wanted. And so you've got to ask yourself, do you want God? Do you want to work through those doubts, those questions, those uncertainties? Do you want that Father in Mark 9's prayer to be your prayer? I believe, help me overcome my belief. If so, then God is there and he's welcoming you and he's waiting for you to come. So how do we do this? How do we work through these doubts? What's the plan? Well, there's some steps to start the progress, but let me say this. I know doubts and bed bugs are not the same thing, right? I know working through doubts is not as simple, as easy, and nice, and clean cut as calling an exterminator and getting a step-by-step plan because everybody's doubts and questions and uncertainties are different. They come with a context. They come with a baggage. Working through doubts and these things, they're hard and confusing and messy and paralyzing in many ways. I get that, and I'm empathetic to that. Nor, nor am I saying that these steps we're going to talk about are just going to somehow solve that problem or doubt or question. You know, if you really would like to talk more about something you're going through after, come talk to me, come talk to anybody on staff. We want to hear what you're going through, particularly in light of the fact that summer is coming up, and we'd love to help you talk through a way to figure that out over the summer. But that said, we got to start somewhere. And so I think the best place to start is to just name the doubts. Could be one, could be 50. Name them. Bring them up to the surface. Get them out in the light. What's the, what's the actual doubt? Write it down. Journal about it. Talk it through with a friend. Try to categorize it. Is it an intellectual doubt? Is it an experiential doubt? Is it a smokescreen doubt? Maybe it's something in all three. I don't know. I know it seems simple and obvious, but there's something about getting it out into the open and knowing what it is you need to work through that's helpful. Next thing is study that doubt. Study the question. Read articles, read books, get a study Bible, an ESV or an NIV study Bible. See what they have to say. Is there an article in there? Listen to podcasts. If you don't know what you don't know, ask somebody who might. Ask somebody on staff, ask a small group leader, ask someone smarter than you who might know a little more. Do some research on both sides. Get a full picture of what's going on. After you study the doubt, or maybe, I don't know, before, after, whatever, interview the doubt interview the doubt. Start interrogating it. Ask questions like, where did it come from? What, what happened in my life that brought this up? Why might this be happening? Why might I have this doubt right now? Is there something God is trying to teach me about myself? Is there something God is trying to teach me about himself? Ask yourself, what do you want out of all this? If you were God, if you were in charge, what would you hope to get out of this doubt? Play good cop, bad cop with this doubt, with this question. Play good cop. Ask what's legit about it. What really makes sense to ask this question? Why is this a good question? But then play, play bad cop. Start to doubt those doubts. Be skeptical of your skepticism. Be cynical of your cynicism. 
Have somebody else sit in on this interview, so to speak. Tell them about the doubt. Ask, have them ask questions of you. Ask for their insight and input. Now, if you're asked to, to kind of sit in on this interview, first of all, thank the person for doing it. They're open and honest enough to bring you in, so you've got to know how much of a risk that was for them. And then don't just come in and initially be the answer guy or the answer girl. Recognize that, yeah, you might know the answer to this, but you want to go at their pace. So maybe ask them a question that helped you. Don't just give them the answer. Help them come find the answer to themselves. So interview that doubt. And after that, go on. You have to live with the doubt. This might be cheesy, but I'm just thinking about it. It helps me. If you're an Avengers fan, right, what's the Hulk's secret? What's his secret? How does he control himself? Well, he's always angry. Right? There's never a moment when he's not angry. He's Bruce Banner in the Hulk. He lives his life fighting crime, saving the world, all that, and he's angry. In a weird way, I think that's true of the reality of the Christian in the sense that we're always doubting. We've always got doubts. We always have uncertainties. It's never 100%. We're always going to be below that 100%, and that's okay. And at the very same time, we can still have faith in Jesus. At the very same time, we are actually still obligated to obey Jesus. The presence of doubts in the life of a Christian does not get us off the hook from obeying him and from following him. And so if we're Christians, we can ask serious and good questions about if miracles are possible and real, and we still need to love our neighbor. If we're a Christian, we can learn and study and ask questions and the validity about the validity of the Bible. We've done that here at Veritas. Can we trust the Bible? You can have those questions and doubts, and you still need to refrain from gossiping, and you still need to refrain from slandering, and you still need to stop lying. See, if we're Christians, the presence of doubt does not give us a free pass. So we've got to live with those doubts. How do you do that? The risk of giving a simplistic answer, we've got to give those doubts to Jesus. We've got to give those doubts to Jesus. This means that if you can imagine just taking them in your hand, you go before him and you lay them at his feet. When you name the doubt, when you study the doubt, when you interview the doubt, when you live with the doubt, realize that that's happening all in the presence of Jesus. And guess what? Jesus wants that process to take place in front of him. He wants to be with us and with you in that process. And giving our doubts to Jesus also means that we humbly listen for and accept the answers that he gives. We've got to listen for and accept the answers that he gives. Here's the deal. There's some questions that God does not tell us the answer to in the Bible. It's a fact. Were the dinosaurs real? Probably, but I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. How old is the earth? I have an opinion, but not for sure. But then there's some questions that God is crystal clear on that we cannot ignore, that we have to wrestle with. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yes. Does the Bible say that God really is one being and three distinct persons, a trinity? Yes. Does the Bible say that sin is a real thing, an objective problem that humanity has before a holy and righteous God? Yes. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask about those questions. But are you listening for the answers? If it's an answer that's clear that you don't like, are you willing to rest in that answer? Are you willing to be okay with that? Here's the deal. Jesus 
has our best interest in mind. How do we know that? Because he died on a cross for you and for me and for everybody who has faith in him. And so we can trust him. And so if we ever come across an answer to a question that we have that we don't like, let's trust him. Trust that Jesus knows what's best for us, best for you, best for me, better than he does. And if that's hard for you, and if that's unnatural for you, that's okay. Nobody is saying being a Christian and having doubts is easy. Nobody's saying that trusting Jesus is easy. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest things, maybe the hardest things you will ever commit to in your life. Doubt is the reality now. But it's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of our faith that matters. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of our faith that matters. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up. And as I do so, I want you to imagine... Uh, imagine going skating on a frozen lake, but that ice, that, that ice on the lake is only an inch thick. I can have all the confidence and all the certainty in the world that I'm going to skate on this ice and it's going to be great, but I'm going to fall through the ice. Why? Because it's an inch thick. Imagine a different day. Imagine a day when I'm not so confident that that ice is going to hold me. Imagine that I am timid and that I'm doubting and that my faith is weak and it's small and I just tiptoe out very carefully on that ice. But that ice is a foot thick. That ice is a foot thick and so it's going to hold me no matter how timid and no matter how weak my faith is. You see, it's not the amount of faith that you have that matters most. It's the object of our faith that matters most. And so no matter where you're at spiritually, no matter where you're at with God right now, no matter where you're going this summer, no matter what you're doing after graduation, no matter what doubt or question or uncertainty you have, bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you can have doubts, absolutely. But name them. Study them. Interview them. Question them. Live with them. And at the end of the day, after all that happens, Put your faith in Jesus. Lay those doubts at his feet and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen.